Hi, travelers. You can listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Go ahead and check out the description of this episode so you can find the link to our link tree, get access to all of our socials, as well as our YouTube channel so you can watch all of our episodes in full. Okay, today is Saturday, December 9th. Awesome show. Uh, just me and you today, Zach. Justin can't make it. Scheduling mishap. He'll be back on Tuesday. Just me and you today. Awesome show. Katie Windham from Bama Nation. Uh, SI Journal for all things uh, Alabama, mostly football. Going to break down all things with her. Uh, making the playoffs and their game coming up in two weeks or well, three weeks, I guess, against Michigan. A lot to get into with her. Just awesome interview, all things considered. Going to break down uh, NFL Week 14 coming up. Zach, uh, you know, give our picks like we always do, our usual rundown like we always have, previewing NFL. First, a couple things to get into before we get into NFL, though. First off and foremost, John Ram joining Liv. Don't have much else to really say about this. All I really know, it's a, I mean, like many of the golfers that have gone on to live from the PGA Tour, a little hypocritical. John, uh, Ram, of course, being one of the most outspoken uh, players against Liv, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, and now, of course, joining Liv, massive, massive deal. Uh, money is kind of. Uh, I've been seeing different numbers, but uh, it's reportedly going to be over more than three hundred million, perhaps maybe even double that. Uh, amazing news, especially in consideration of the live and PGA, you know, having to come to a deal here in the next three weeks. Uh, were you surprised by the time, Zach? And most importantly, I, I want to read you a quote that he said. Uh, he said, uh, like I said before, is true. I do not play golf for the money. And of course, with this news in mind, uh, what do you think about him moving to live and just this overall news that came out yesterday? Well, any athlete that tells you it's not about the money, um, yeah, it's about the money. It always is, always has been, always will be. But John Rahm, I don't blame him for taking the money. When you offer, when you give a guy that much amount, I mean, what, what's he going to say? Especially considering the fact that Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, is doing business with Liv. How is he going to turn around and be upset at players for going out and taking their money? John Rahm was loyal to the PGA Tour. Yep. When all this came out, then he found out that his boss wasn't being so loyal. And so this time when Liv offered him the money, I don't really blame him for taking it. Yeah, I mean, again, the numbers are astonishing. Uh, it could be, you know, 500, 600 million, something like that, I think, over the, over the course of three years. John Ram, of course, currently ranked number three in the world golf rankings. Reigning Masters champion, uh, leaving uh, PGA to go to Liv. Uh, we'll be teeing off for the Liv uh, February 2nd, coming up here in just a month or two. John Soto to the Yankees, going on to baseball news, MLB news, news that might get uh, overshadowed very soon here, Zach, uh, as we're recording this on Friday, Friday night, uh, Shohei Otane is expected to uh, sign with a team over the next you know day or two here, maybe even tonight before this podcast even goes out. But I do want to touch base on Juan Soto real fast. Seven-player trade going to the Yankees. Juan Soto is coming to New York with outfielder Trent uh, Trent Grisham. Excuse me. Padres get right-hander uh, Michael y uh, King, Drew Thorpe, uh, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, and catcher Kyle uh, Higashaki. Uh, what do you think about this trade, all things considered? I mean, you look at the page, uh, Padres and Mets last year, spending all the money they did, uh, Soto being on that team for the Padres, of course, and both teams kind of falling short and. Uh, Yankees, of course, we all know how they did last season, finishing. Uh, what did they? I forget where they finished exactly in the division, but yeah, uh, fourth in the AL East with only 82 wins. 
now fifth best odds to win the World Series uh, going into the next year. But I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this trade, given, like I said, uh, the Mets, Padres, both paying a lot of money last year and not really doing as well as you would expect. So do you think this trade will really help the Yankees in putting them putting them over that hump that they need to get to to get back to their uh, winning ways in the playoffs? Well, I don't think it's going to hurt the Yankees. Anytime you can yeah. add a player of Juan Soto's caliber, you obviously have to do it. But I, the Yankees, their biggest issues are still pitching related, and this doesn't solve that. Their biggest issues are still that this is an old team. This doesn't really solve that. So I, it's a good move for them. Obviously, you get more pop in the lineup, but the Yankees are still right now, I think at best, the third team in the AL East right now. Tampa has been consistently great. We know the Orioles won 100 games last year, and they're probably going to be really good again next year. So the Yankees got better, but did they get better enough to play with those top two teams? I'm not sure that they did. Good point. I mean, Soto will obviously help on the offensive side. Coming off his 2023 season with the Padres, 0.275 batting average, on-base percentage of 0.41, and a slugging percentage of uh, just about 52.519, 35 homers, 32 doubles, a triple, and 109 RBIs in his 162 games in San Diego. So we'll we'll see. Definitely a good uh, pickup for the Yankees, but yeah, uh, pitching as we see uh, over the next three four months here before season really gets underway is something that has to be addressed by the Yankees. I mentioned it briefly with Shohei Otani. Uh, well, with with Juan Soto might become. Uh, obsolete the news very soon if not already has been Shohei Otane is expected to make a decision I I heard by Sunday uh but if you if you're on Twitter on Friday and maybe even Saturday depending on what happens here he is expected to make a deal very very soon the finalists I have from what I've heard are the Dodgers Blue Jays Giants and Angels and uh, I think the Cubs actually are in there too I just learned of and I guess we're not going to go too much into it now, Zach. Uh, most likely, this will be ha- this will happen before Tuesday show. We'll break it down then, uh, as far as what team he actually ends up going to. But let me ask you this: Who do you want him to go to, and who do you think he probably will go to out of those names I just mentioned? Well, right now he's in flight to go to Toronto, so they're becoming a pretty heavy favorite to to make wow. this happen. So. Right now, my guess is he probably ends up at the Blue Jays. I always thought he was going to go to the Dodgers because it seemed like the most yeah. logical conclusion. Um, I do, He's not going back to the Angels. I think that would be the biggest surprise yeah. of all. Uh-uh. He's not going to play on the East Coast. So my guess is I think it's going to end up being Toronto. Yeah. How funny would it be if he just like signs with the uh, Pirates after all this? Yeah. But no, um, Blue Jays. Are you surprised by the Blue Jays? I mean, it's you just mentioned it yourself. Blue Jays are such a weird team. I mean, yeah. it's not even uh, – we, we've been hearing you know, over the you know year of him becoming a free agent here how much he – the likelihood of him staying in uh, – you know, on the West Coast and the Dodgers, you know, with the bankroll they have and the hype that they have were most likely going to be that team that he was going to go to. But now he goes to the Blue Jays, a really, really small market, just – just ext- I mean, it's not, it's not done yet. Obviously, it hasn't been signed officially. But I do want to you know break down a couple of things of why it actually does make sense for him to go to the Blue Jays. Toronto, of course, has made some pretty big free agency moves in the past to you know hype up their team. They just made it to the playoffs you know this past year. Had a decent showing, all things considered, but still not the best. Uh, another thing I've seen a lot of people have been saying is that Shohei wants more of a low-key atmosphere, similar to what he had in Los Angeles with the Angels. And of course, Toronto will definitely give him that. Like I said, being one of the lower market teams in the country. Um, last point, though, Rogers Center, uh, where, the, where the 
the Blue Jays play, Shohei has had some pretty good success in that stadium over his career. Over the time he's played, uh, you know, at in Toronto, three two six batting average, four six six on base percentage, and a six seven four slugging percentage as well, with three home runs over those thirteen games that he's played in Toronto. So it likes the stadium, likes that low key atmosphere, and like you said, Zach, he's on his plane. He's on a plane right now to Toronto, and. Yep. We'll have to just see what happens. But no, definitely not staying with the Angels. Him, his contract alone, what he's asking for, along with Mike Trout, will be over a billion dollars. And that would just be for two players. So there's no way. They, they're not winning. He wants a winning atmosphere as well. And Angels, of course, are not giving that. Last thing before NFL, I do want to touch base on uh, the in-season tournament. Semifinals are over. Finals locked in. Of course, now it will be the Lakers and the Pacers facing off in the finals on Sunday night. Break down the Pacers-Bucks game real fast. Bucks. Very, very tight rotation. Showed it on the box score. Bobby Portis, Campaign, and Marjon Beercap all played under 20 minutes, and the bench combined to score only 13 of the team's 119 points. Other hand, Pacers bench scored 43 of the squad's 128 points. The deeper rotation seemed to benefit the Pacers on defense as well. Aaron Naismith, Isaiah Jackson contributed two crucial defensive stops down the stretch that ultimately helped the Pacers win over the Bucks. What was your uh, overall thought on uh, this game, Zach? Like we said on Thursday, in-season tournament has been more exciting uh, than we expected, especially, you know, once that bracket came out and the elimination games started to, started to happen. Yeah, I think so. Now, next year, what I'd like to see is the in-season tournament go back to just the home courts for the semifinals and the finals because the atmosphere yeah. was dramatically different at the semis than it was in the uh, rounds leading up to that because, Anytime you can play at home or, you know, even if you're on the road, but have somebody with a home court advantage matters. And we've seen this, you know, there's a reason the NBA finals are not a neutral site location. So I would like to see that yeah. going forward. But as far as the Pacers, Tyrese Halliburton is making himself quite a statement over this in-season term. And he's yep. putting himself as among the best players in the NBA. Bucks have some issues. Damian Lillard, as great as he is offensively, not so good defensively. And this team needs a bigger rotation. They're wearing Giannis out. Giannis calling out the uh, coaching staff a little bit, saying that they need to be a lot more organized. And that's true because this team has all the talent in the world to win a championship. Right now, they haven't put it together yet. Certainly not giving up on them. But the Pacers outplayed him down the stretch. And Tyrese Halliburton been the MVP of this in-season tournament so far. Not only just MVP, but it's been the biggest story. Tyrese Halliburton uh, coming out of his shell uh, in this tournament. Thursday night, 27 points, 7 rebounds, and 15 assists. You mentioned it, though. The bench is a big problem for, for the for the Bucks going down the stretch here, and it really it really showed in this game alone. Onto the Kupo, Giannis, and uh, Damian Lillard tw- uh, combined for 61 points. And like I said, their bench only had 13 of the team's 119 total points. Miles Turner also played pretty good, 26 points, 10 rebounds. Good for the Pacers, and uh, they, like I said, they'll play the Lakers on Sunday night. Which, speaking of, Lakers do beat the Pelicans uh, on the second game of the night on Thursday night. All around team effort for the for the Lakers. Austin Reeves scored 17 points, Anthony Davis 16, Torian Prince 15, and then LeBron, of course, with his 30 in only less than three quarters that he played. Defense also held New Orleans to under 36% shooting from the field and had 59 rebounds compared to the Pelicans' 42. So overall, both sides of the ball, team effort, domination on the Pelicans. Anything else you want to add to this, Zach? And it seems like the Lakers are pretty pretty destined to win this tournament, though. It's what, what, sure something that the Lakers like play. Yeah, yeah, LeBron, uh, that was the fewest minutes he ever took to get to 30 points in his entire career, which, I mean, LeBron's yeah. setting records even in year 21. So it's just, uh-huh. it's amazing. But 
I mean, the balance of the Lakers, I think, is the thing that stood out the most, as you mentioned, with, you know, Reeves having a big day, AD having a big day. Whenever they're able to help LeBron out, this team is as dangerous as any in the NBA. I do expect them to win the in-season tournament. And, you know, this shouldn't be all that surprising because for something that's brand new, it's like the COVID tournament in 2020. When something is there that people aren't familiar with, ride the veterans, ride the superstars. LeBron and Anthony mm-hmm. Davis have handled this better than anybody. Football. Moving on to football. Uh, break down, let's break down Thursday Night Football real fast. Bad game on paper, but turned out to actually be not too bad of a game. I mean, Steelers still are, have major, major issues they have to take care of. Played pretty well, Trubisky. Uh, didn't get the win, of course. And Bailey Zappi played really well, too. I don't know what happened with the Patriots. Scored 21 points despite only putting up 13 points over their past previ- uh, their previous three games. Offense finally did show up for the Patriots. So the defense didn't have to do all the work and ended up winning 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 game for for the Patriots yeah Bailey Zappi was great in this game 240 yards three touchdowns was in complete control from the very beginning we were trying to figure out which quarterback would show up it turned out it was Bailey Zappi two touchdowns to Hunter Henry and both of those throws were just absolutely on a dime Uh, they didn't really do a ton in the second half they didn't score at all in the second half but they were able to consistently run the ball enough to keep the Steelers off the field and then the defense came up with stands when they needed them and you know the Patriots it's been a terrible season for them But in a one-game setting, still hard to go against Bill Belichick and able to get a win there. And for the Steelers, two straight losses to teams that are 2-10. and Getting dominated by the Cardinals on Sunday. Now you turn around four days later and lose this game. They had an opportunity to go to 9-4 and and really put themselves in a great position to make the playoffs because their last four games are not going to be easy for them. They've got the Bengals, they've got the Colts, they've got the Ravens. Very difficult schedule ahead for the Steelers. They needed to win both of these games to give themselves a chance. And now sitting where they're at, I'm not sure that this team's making the postseason. This, these are the kind of losses that keep teams out. Yeah, no, these you could argue these were must wins for the Steelers. I mean, just I know you hate that word, Zach, but Cardinals, Patriots, probably the two worst teams in the league, and the Panthers too. But Bears have actually been playing pretty well, so the Cardinals and Patriots might actually be the the two worst teams in the league. These are the teams that the Steelers lose, though. They always lose to teams below them. They always play down to their competition. Bailey Zappi, though, like you already alluded to, Zach. Uh, 81% adjusted completion percentage and average 8.6 yards per pass attempt on Thursday night. Uh, Zeke Elliott, my only, my only other point from this game, played pretty well too. Resurrection of Zeke Elliott a little bit. Um, 140 yards from the scrimmage, 72 receiving, 68 rushing, and caught a TD as well. Pretty much doing nothing all season, but he was given the chance to prove that he still has it, and he, he played pretty well, all things considered, uh, Thursday night. Breaking down the other games, week 14 coming up, Zach, like we always do. I'm going to start with you. What game do you see being very close? I think we might have the same game here. I'm going Bill's Chiefs for closest game. I think this is going to be maybe the best game of the weekend. It's a must win for Buffalo, I think, in order for them to have a chance to make the playoffs. Kansas City, it might be a must win as well after losing to the Packers last week. Their offense has been actually one of the worst in football over the last month or so of the season. Patrick Mahomes, a career low, 260 yards per game. These are two teams that obviously have a lot of familiarity with each other. They're used to these big game environments, and it feels like a little bit of desperation for both teams. The Chiefs are going to make the playoffs. They're going to win the AFC West. But if they're going to have the road to the Super Bowl go through Arrowhead, this seems like a must win. And for the Bills, in order to make the playoffs at all, it feels like it's got to be a must win. First time since Allen's rookie season in 2018 that the Bills were 500 or worse. And then, of course, the Chiefs playing below their expectations as well. But I'll I'll touch base on that more in my intriguing storyline. But 
My closest game, uh, my closest game. A lot of people might have this too. Uh, Eagles Cowboys, ton on the line for this rematch, including temporary control over the NFC East. Of course, the winning quarterback could emerge as the favorite to win the NLV, uh, NFL's MVP award as well. The winner will have ton of momentum going on the stretch. These teams don't like each other. Yeah, this game is going to just be an absolute juggernaut of a match in Dallas. Eagles won the first game, of course, 28-23 to on November 5th at the link. But the Cowboys literally lost by only inches that game, and they're out for blood. They, they think they're better than the Eagles, and they want to show it, especially on their home turf. Sh- Eagles, of course, also have been really shaky these past couple of weeks, uh, especially on defense. They've gone 3-1 and one the last month in a stretch of games that included the Cowboys, Chiefs, Bills, and 49ers. Their defense has looked very, very vulnerable in all those games. They're really struggling against NFL's better offenses, but... Particularly, it's that secondary, like we've been saying all season long. Their um, their secondary is just so depleted right now, and it's you know, I think Dak Prescott might unfortunately have a field day with them, especially with how he's been playing all season long, and C.D. Lamb uh, emerging as one of the best wide receivers in the league. Uh, what's your most intriguing storyline, Zach, coming up this weekend? Yeah, it's the Eagles-Cowboys game. This is the biggest game so far maybe of the NFL season because if the Eagles win this game, they're going to win the NFC East. Jalen Hurts is going to be the front runner for MVP. They'll have swept the Cowboys, and they'll have done something that nobody's been able to do. That's go to Arlington and beat Dallas. Uh, Seattle was the only team that's given them a game down there. Every other game, the Cowboys yep. have won by 20 or more points. And if you're the Cowboys, this is your statement opportunity. We've talked about all season long. The Cowboys have beaten the teams they're supposed to beat, and they've lost to the better teams. Well, this is an opportunity to you for you to finally get a win against an elite opponent. And I think they feel really good about themselves coming into this game. Dak Prescott has been playing the best football of his career. Micah Parsons and that defense has been through the roof. Uh, if the Whoever wins this game, I think, is going to be maybe the front runner for the number one seed in the NFC. San Francisco certainly hoping Dallas wins this game because then I think the 49ers will control their destiny because they've beaten both of these teams this year. If the Eagles win, they're still probably the front runners for the number one seed in the NFC. So th- this is the most intriguing game, I think, of the season so far. My most intriguing storyline is I'm going <laughs> to – we're kind of switch trading a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, my Chief, Chiefs, Bills – uh, just who's going to stop the bleeding? I know you already kind of touched base on this game. Both are desperate wins for these two teams. It could be Josh Allen's worst year uh, as a Bill in his whole entire career. And then the Chiefs are obviously on a free dive as well. Lost three of their last five five games, falling to eight and four, and looking up at Baltimore and Miami in the AFC standings. Different feel, all things considered, Bills returning the arrowhead this Sunday. There's not, not the same team as we expected. Thought they would be especially heading you know this late into the season only other note i have on this game turnover concern is massive for both qbs allen has committed at least one in eight straight games uh totaling nine interceptions and two lost fumbles while mahomes has thrown 10 picks and he's on pace to set a career high for turnover so my opinion whoever's going to take care of the ball the best i do think it's going to be a much better uh spot what's your surprise of the week that you could see coming up zach I'm going with the Broncos on the road against the Chargers. Chargers are two-and-a-half-point favorites at home, but we know that's not a home-field advantage for them. Broncos finally had their win streak snapped last week on the road in Houston. I think they start a new streak this week. I don't trust the Chargers, even at home. I trust Russell Wilson. I trust this Broncos defense. They played significantly better as of late. And the Broncos have actually played pretty well against the Chargers in recent years. So I'm going with the Broncos here to knock off the Chargers. Yeah, I'm going to go Bears over Lions. Um I mentioned it earlier in the show. Bears have been looking decent as of late. I mean, offense is still a problem, but their defense has looked really, really good. What was one of the worst passing defenses in the league has made a 
sudden turnaround in the past three weeks, I would say. Bears, of course, almost did come off the pulling off that victory a few weeks ago against the Lions. They do face them again in a rematch. Uh, Montez Sweat has been amazing. Chicago's first eight games, they were averaging just 14.9 pressures per game and held 13 or fewer in five of those games. In the four games with Sweat, the Bears have, are averaging 19.5 pressures per game with at least 17 in each game. Impressively, that includes games against solid offenses like the Lions and the Vikings. So Montez Sweat really helping out the secondary by adding pressure on that quarterback and you know forcing some mistakes and just uh, giving the quarterback just less time in general, though, which, which of course is going to obviously help those defensive backs. The results have been noticeable. Uh, the Bears have tallied seven interceptions and seven sacks in the past three games alone. Uh, Jared Goff has not been playing his best ball. Uh, we've already mentioned it at length over and over on this show. Turnovers have been his biggest problem so far. Not the Jared Goff as we've been seeing the last couple of years over these last uh, three, four games. If the Lions want to run away with this game, they'll need to come from their run game. And uh, the Bears, of course, are pretty good at stopping that too, all things considered. So it's going to be a good game, but I do think the Bears have a chance to uh, beat the Lions. Shootout of the week. What, what, what game do you see being a shootout this week? I'm going with the highest over-under this week. That's the Eagles and the Cowboys. Typically when these teams play, somebody scores in the 30s, and I'm expecting kind of the same this time around. I think Jalen Hurts is going to have a bounce-back performance after what happened a week ago, but, I mean, you can't help but be impressed with Dak Prescott, C.D. Lamb. That running game's gotten better as the season's gone along. The Cowboys right now might have the best offense in football. I think the winner of this game scoring at least 30 points. Last time these teams played in Dallas, it was 40-34. to 34. I don't think you're going to get that kind of, sh- kind of shootout, but I think you're going to get a lot of points. I'm going to go with Seahawks-Niners. Give me another divisional uh, matchup. Of course, they played on Thanksgiving. San Fran crushed Seattle 31-13. Uh, the Seahawks on offense looked really, really good last week. I think this is going to be a, a good matchup, too. Give me the other divisional game going on the West Coast. Uh this week and i think the seahawks are going to want revenge from that thanksgiving game and i think they're going to ride the momentum of offense they had last week and of course niners don't need an introduction as as far as what they can do on offense especially with how the way debo and metcalf have been playing zach what is your snoozer of the week saints panthers this game it's the nfc south panthers the worst team in the league we don't know what new orleans is going to do at quarterback then this offense has been stuck in mud all season long this this is not going to be a fun watch yeah, I'm going to go with Jags-Browns, unfortunately. We don't really know um, the status of Trevor Lawrence. I've actually heard reports that he might play Sunday, which yeah, I think same. is pretty yeah. pretty crazy. <laughs> I don't actually know how that's – I mean, I've heard high ankle sprains are pretty bad. But, I mean, of course, it might just depend on where it is. Browns, we all know, have lost their starting quarterback. Flacco proved to be pretty good last week, but nothing more than really a game manager. Um, both defensive units have been playing great as of late, too. So, yeah, this – I think – I think Joe Flacco tapes on him now. He's going to kind of come back down the earth. And then, of course, uh, yeah, we saw that the backup quarterback for the Jags couldn't do it last week as well. And I, I don't think Trevor Lawrence is going to play in pretty bad offenses with pretty good defenses. So that this gives a recipe for a low, low scoring game. What's your favorite of the week? Hmm. Favorite of the week. I am going to go with. I'm going to go with the Ravens, get it done at home against yeah. the Rams. Usually I, I've been back in the Ravens much of the season, and you know, Lamar Jackson's been playing fantastic. They finally yeah. got a bye week last week, which is one of the later bye weeks in the league. Rams coming off a big win against the Browns, but you know they're banged up quite a bit. And you know, 10 a.m. local start for 
the Rams going on the road to play in Baltimore. And we know how dominant the Ravens have typically been at home this year, you know, fourth quarter against the Browns aside. I, I think the Ravens handle business. Jackson doesn't lose the NFC opponents either. So <laughs> that's also helpful. I want to go to uh, Texas over Jets. Jets don't have a quarterback. That's saying it lightly. They, they literally, literally just don't have a quarterback. CJ Stroud leading NFL with three uh, 3,540 yards in passing. The third most by a player in his first 12 games, by the way. It, but just overall offense and defense have been playing just amazing for the Texans. They won four of the last five games. They're on pace to make the playoffs. Miko Ryan, coach of the year. Texans are going to come away with this win for sure. Houston's pass rush is just going to eat the Jets, uh, you know, especially with the problems they've been having with their offensive line. And then quarterbacks just in general, just not getting it done. Uh, writer's block of the week, Zach. Let's move on to writer's block. Uh, Deion Sanders saying he wants more privacy. Uh, no, you're Deion Sanders. You're prime time. This is your whole thing. You're out there front face. You're out having Little Wayne come on the sideline. You're having Big Noon and College Game Day on your campus back-to-back weeks. Embrace it. Lean into who you are. I want a coach with personality. I don't want the same Deion Sanders. I don't want him to be, turn into most college coaches that won't give you anything. I like the refreshing honesty of Dion. I like the fact that he's got character. I like the fact that he's willing to play up a persona, and he should continue to do so. And the idea that, oh, I, I need my privacy. Privacy isn't the reason why your team stunk down the stretch and lost eight of the last nine games. That happened because you are playing in a big boy conference now and you didn't realize you needed offensive linemen. So, Dion, just continue to stay who you are. There's a reason top recruits and people around the country are interested in Colorado football. They're not going to be interested in Colorado football if if you just decide to lock yourself in. So, Dion, stay stay being primetime. Yeah, I'm going to go with the reports of this ex-Jaguar employee (laughs) that – Stole $22.2 million from the Jaguars. I mean, apparently it was 99% of the money stolen was used on gambling, which is insane. Reports come out that he lost a lot of money on gambling and uh, he was just trying to use that money to basically give it all back. Reports come out that he was the goal in mind was that he was going to hopefully win enough money to break even and give all the money back to the Jaguars, which I think is just kind of absurd. The whole story is just insane. He was like the president of their, you know, their, their financial accounting system or something with in finances. I have it. I have it right here. Exactly what his title was from 2018 to 2020. His titles during that time were a coordinator of financial planning and then later on got promoted to manager of financial planning and analysis. So he had control of their virtual credit card. He could write off any expenses that he wanted and it ended up being $22 million, which 99% of uh, was found out to be used on gambling. Pretty crazy stuff. Let's move on. Interview, Katie Windham. Awesome interview. Breaking down Alabama season. Thought they were done. Me and you, Zach, were saying it ourselves. Uh, you know, after week three, week two, especially after that loss to the Texans, we were all saying that Alabama was done. Nick Saban was done, washed. Uh, of course, came came back and uh, now in the playoffs and probably one of the best teams, if not the best team in the league. Going to break all that down with her, the tumultuous season they've had, making the playoffs and especially their game coming up against Michigan. So, yeah, without further ado, let's head, let's head on down to the south and talk to Katie Winham from Bama Central. Okay, we now head to the South and bring on Katie Winham, beat writer for Bama Central, Sports Illustrated affiliate for Alabama football. Katie, had to have you on. Alabama had a crazy year this year. Start of the season, people were thinking about the dynasty of Alabama being over, maybe even firing Nick Saban. 
but look at them now coming back, beating Georgia in the SEC championship game. And now they're in the playoffs. And just, I don't want to start off too broad, but just tell me how crazy it is just going how the narrative was in the beginning of the season when they started off, you know, pretty bad, all things considered for Alabama standards. And now they're, they, they just beat out Georgia for a spot in the playoffs who was the number one ranked team pretty much the entire year, or, you know, was the number one ranked team the entire year. So just what, I mean, what, what is the biggest thing that changed for this Alabama team to, uh, you know, get them to where they are right now heading into, uh, you know, New Year six and the year here. Yeah. It's crazy because it, you know, it's not that unusual for Nick Saban to beat a number one team, but I don't think there's anyone that covers this team, this Alabama team, or follows this team that after that USF game thought that Alabama would be in this position. Because it's not just that they lost to Texas at the beginning of the year. Obviously, Saban coached Alabama team had never lost that early, but it was more what happened that next week against USF. We were all kind of joking in the press box that, like, we might be back here at the end of the year in this press box for the Outback Bowl or whatever it's called now because I don't think it's called that anymore. And uh, now Alabama is back in the college football playoff and – um, obviously that, that third game, that USF game, Jalen Milrow didn't play. And I think that point was kind of um, mm-hmm. a rallying point for him and the whole team when he kind of became the guy after that game. Alabama gave him the starting job back against Ole Miss in week four, and he really just took the reins. But really when things started to change um, a lot was coming out of the bye, that LSU game. Uh, we really saw Alabama's offense open up in different ways, and uh, Tommy Reese kind of called more plays that are more suited to Jalen Melrose's skill sets, more designed runs. Obviously, he had a huge game against LSU running the ball um, and throwing it, and Alabama kind of started to involve some different guys in the offense. And uh, this defense has been pretty strong all year, but uh, the way that Milrow has grown and involved, and Saban's talked a lot about as he's grown in confidence, it's helped the whole offense grow in confidence. And um, the offensive line has gotten a lot better. Uh, Milrow was getting sacked left and right the first really two-thirds of the mm-hmm. year, um, and they've improved a lot. And uh, it's all kind of come together where, you know, here we were For last sure. weekend in Atlanta that Alabama was able to upset number one Georgia in their kind of dominant run over the last three years. Yeah, and you think about, you know, when the year started, people were bickering about, Alabama not having a starting quarterback. I know they were, you know, in between two, three people. And so just take me through Jalen Milrow and the fan base of Alabama and how just excited they are that he came into his own and especially in the, you know, running the ball and being, you know, a, an agile quarterback, just how impressed and how excited are fans that, you know, Jalen Milrow was able to come out and play as good as he was able to play this, you know, second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, obviously Alabama fans are, are thrilled with that. They've really rallied around him and uh, kind of his persona, the link thing that he and Terry on Arnold kind of started at the beginning of the year. But it was different entering this season. The Alabama's come off this run of great NFL-level quarterbacks with Jalen Hurts and Tua and Mac Jones, then most recently Bryce Young. And there was so much uncertainty coming into the season. The fan base was pretty divided about who they wanted the guy to be. Um, there were a lot of people that were Jalen supporters, and there were a lot of people that weren't, especially after that Texas game. Um, but uh, the fan base has really rallied around him. I think we've seen better decision-making from him um, over the last month of the season because a lot of the sacks early on were um, – a lot of them were the offensive line, but a lot of them were him not making good decisions and being too hesitant to run the ball. Um, and then there's been more design yeah. runs lately, and then also him just uh, choosing to scramble and uh, make the most of plays and – 
Um, obviously, what he did in the Iron Bowl two weeks ago will cement him forever in Alabama lore of having that uh, fourth and goal from the 31 play to, to win that game when uh, things were not looking good for Alabama like they a lot of times are in Jordan-Hare. But, um, yeah. yeah, he's someone that this fan base, I think, is fully rallied around and um, that they're uh, really confident in leading uh, their team into the playoffs. Do you think uh, Nick Saban should be considered coach of the year in college football, just what he was able to do? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would agree this is his best uh, coaching job, if, if one of his best, if not his best, uh, while at Alabama, which obviously it's not unusual for him to get his team to the playoffs. They've been eight of the ten years of its existence, but there were very, very few people that probably thought Alabama would be here after um, the first three weeks of the season. And the way he's been able to rally this team with a new quarterback, two new coordinators, um, you know, you had a new starter running back, a bunch of your key positions. You lost Will Anderson and Bryce Young, your two main guys on both sides of the ball uh, coming into this year. And um, the way he's rallied this team and kept them focused and um, gotten them to this point where they were able to win the SEC and get back in the playoffs, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times Nick Saban has done good coaching jobs, but it, and he doesn't care about the awards, uh, yeah. especially for him personally, but um, where he doesn't necessarily get recognized just because of who he is. But I think this year he probably will um, maybe win some of those Coach of the Year awards. I think today I can't remember the name of it, but he was named a semifinalist for one of them uh, earlier on Thursday. And so um, I think maybe he'll take some some of those home this year. How do they match up against Michigan coming up here at the end of the year? Um, you know, run game. I mean, me personally, looking outside looking in, I'm not really an Alabama fan per se, but uh, I, would you be concerned about the rushing attack for Michigan? Blake Corum obviously can run the ball. Donovan Edwards, uh, you know, of course, can also you know be dominant on the ground as well. And Alabama can get a little bit tricky sometimes against the run game. So, what is uh you know how does Alabama match up against Michigan? And you know what's the hopes of being able to take them down come end of the year? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a ton of uh, Michigan scouting yet, but um, yeah, the rush defense has been a concern for Alabama at times this year, especially uh, in the Iron Bowl. I think Auburn rushed for a lot more yards than people would have expected them to, but uh, we saw last week Alabama limited Georgia to 78 yards on the ground. Um, and yeah. so there, there's been times where uh, they've been really effective in um, defending the rush, and I, I think it's a good matchup for Alabama. Um, obviously, Michigan has one of the best defenses in the country, but they've also been facing Big Ten offenses <laughs> for the majority of the year, and um, the other day I was listening to the radio and I think they were talking about basically like half of Michigan's schedule has been against offenses that are ranked a hundred mm -hmm. or below. Um, mm -hmm. And that's certainly not Alabama. So I don't think they've seen an offense yet that kind of has um, the skill set and, and the personnel like Alabama has. And so I think offensively against uh, for Alabama against the Michigan defense, it's, it's a good matchup, but um, you know, Michigan's currently favored. I think last time I checked it was, a one and a half point spread, something in that range. Um, yeah, I won't be super surprised if by the time January 1st rolls around, it's more of a pick em or maybe even Alabama favor, which is kind of crazy with um, Michigan being ranked number one in the playoffs. But um, obviously Jim Harbaugh, yeah. Harbaugh has done a great job of kind of rallying his team around um, all the adversity they've had. And, and they have talented players too. He obviously recruits high quality players, um, but it, it's definitely a, a matchup that Alabama can win. No, um, and I know you said you haven't done much scouting on Michigan yet, but you did allude to it already. I mean, this is going to be probably the 
best offense Michigan has seen all year. Uh, Michigan's strength of schedule, for the most part, has been pretty weak, all things considered, you know, except for a couple of handful of games that they've had there. Alabama has definitely been tested a little bit more heavily uh, throughout the course of the season. Going back to that, though, speaking of which, you know, week two, Texas, that loss against Texas. I mentioned at the start of this interview, people at the start of the year were hammering on Alabama, kind of being washed, maybe the dynasty being over. But, you know, looking back on it, that loss to Texas might not have been as bad considering that they are, you know, one of the teams with Alabama in that college football playoff. And I guess what I'll ask you here is how bad do Alabama fans want to see Texas again? I mean, Alabama has the win, of course, against Michigan we just talked about, but then uh, how bad does really <laughs> do, do fans want to see Texas again in the playoffs, get a, get, a, get a rematch from week two? Yeah, it would really kind of like finish that redemptive arc that this Alabama mm-hmm. team has been on this season if they end up finishing the season with the national championship against the team that beat them in the regular season so they can kind of avenge that loss. Um, because so far this year, um, they've taken care of, you know, three of the last teams that beat them, Georgia in 2021 and uh, LSU and uh, Tennessee from last year. They beat them this year. And so, uh, yeah, it, it would be kind of the perfect bow, the perfect storyline for the way the season to end. And obviously, you know, if Alabama and Texas both win and their semifinal matchups and meet up, it'll be uh, the game's in Houston, the national championship. So I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if Texas has the stadium probably 75-25 just because – it's in Texas. Texas hasn't won a national championship since the you know mid 2000s, so their fans are desperate for one. Alabama has obviously played them plenty, so um, their fan base isn't going to be as likely to kind of um, probably dole out the money. And Texas will get all the um, kind of corporate tickets anyway, since it's in Houston. But Alabama's had good success in the past in national championships against teams in their home state. You look at LSU in 2011, which was technically the 2012 BCS national title, and then uh, Georgia in 2017 and in Atlanta, um, which was, you know, technically in January of 2018. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's something that's, you know, worked for Alabama in the past when the stadium's kind of been against them. And I think these players want another shot at Texas too, because you look back at that Texas matchup, and I think the Longhorns finished with five sacks in that game. And I believe that's the only game of the year that the Alabama defense did not record a sack. And from uh, that game on, Dallas Turner went on like a six-game streak where he, he recorded at least one sack or something in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, um, he kind of talked about how that game kind of motivated him and it left a bitter taste in the defense's mouth that they weren't able to get um, at Quinn Ewers a lot in that game. And so I think it's something that the fan base wants and I think it's something that the players want too to kind of um, guys who maybe had rough games against Texas the first time. That's the only game this year that Jalen Milrow had multiple interceptions, I believe. Caden um, mm-hmm. Proctor, the freshman left tackle, really struggled in that game. He struggled early on in the season. He's improved a lot, so I'm sure he would like another shot at the Texas defensive front. Um, and then the Alabama defense played, I guess, probably their worst quarter of the year in that fourth quarter against Texas. And so um, I know all of them would like another crack at the Longhorns. We've been saying it at length in our talk here this whole time. I mean, uh, Alabama, much different team than they were in the beginning of the year. And a lot of that is in you know reference to Nick Saban and how he was able to turn the team around. Are you surprised, though? I mean, trying to be as unbiased as possible. I think this was the first time – I know the – the playoffs have only been around since uh, 2014, but I think this was the first time a team outside the top six did jump into the top four uh, the weekend leading up to the final rankings. Were you surprised that they were able to jump up as high as they did? Of course, when they played Georgia, they were the eighth seed, and now they're obviously in one of the top four. Uh, were you surprised uh, the jump they did make after beating Georgia this past weekend? 
a little bit, but also if you kind of look, obviously this season was different than any we've seen in the past as far as how many good teams were left at the top of the rankings at the end of the year. Um, I don't know. I just kind of knew, especially listening to Greg Sankey throughout the week, he had a media availability, I think on Thursday before the SEC championship. And then he was on uh, either game day or SEC nation on Saturday morning. And we were listening on the radio and we were driving over to Atlanta and just kind of his confidence in the SEC getting in no matter what. Um, and it was wild because back probably around, I don't know, week seven or so, um, before Saban press conference on Monday, some of us were kind of just talking in the, the media room about, you know, what happens if there's an undefeated big 12 champion between that was before Oklahoma had lost or mm-hmm. so either an undefeated Oklahoma or, or Texas with one loss that the head to head on Alabama undefeated in the PAC 12 undefeated in the ACC, and then either Michigan or Ohio state, whoever wins the big 10, we are like, that'll never happen. Like, somebody will lose. And it right. just kept happening week after week that the teams Alabama needed to lose, it just didn't happen. But um, I kind of knew if they beat Georgia, they would probably have the best resume in the country. They would have just beaten number one. Their only loss would be to another playoff team that I just would find it really hard to believe that the committee would leave them out. Um, and I knew that Jordan Travis's injury was going to kind of be their the committee's um, – Yeah. Sure. They're, I can't think of the right word right now, but their way that they could yeah. slip Alabama in is that that's the excuse they could use. And that was like the very first thing that Boo Corgan said on the CFP show when he was asked about it was that Florida State was a different team without Jordan Travis, which um, I hate it for them. I hate it for him. It's an unfortunate circumstance. We've really never seen this in right. the playoff era that there's this many teams that are truly kind of deserving of those top four spots. Um, but it'll be the right. last time that we face kind of this scenario because obviously – Next year we enter the twelve team playoff, but then it'll just be there's somebody in that scenario that's right on the outside looking in. But it'll obviously give more teams uh, opportunity. Yeah, I mean it's like everyone's been saying two things can be true at the same time, right? It's unfair, but it's also the best four teams did make it. The committee continues to not really uh, respect the ACC. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion. But that being said, though, I'll leave uh, our talk with this question here, this has been awesome. I really, you know, thank you for your time, Katie, but being in Alabama, you know, some that covers Alabama, you're an Alabama fan. Uh, you interact with the fan base tremendously. I mean, all the time I can imagine. What are the fans and yourself even for that matter? What are your thoughts on expanding the playoffs to 12? The argument for people not liking the expansion of the 12 teams next year is it's going to uh, make wins and losses a little bit less valuable and Alabama of course being one of those top teams every single year that does deserve it that you know does showcase it and earn it on the field what are the th- I mean what are you thinking about the 12 team expansion next year being like I said someone that covers one of a consistent you know right. consistently a top four or top five team yeah I mean I do think it will devalue the regular season some I think they're too gonna have to figure out what to do about conference championships because mm-hmm. really we saw what happened this year is that Georgia playing in that conference championship against Alabama ended up punishing them because they're number one and they have to play, you know, number eight Alabama. Meanwhile, Michigan's playing Iowa. That's probably like that actually I think is the worst offense in the country. Um, mm-hmm. Statistically, you know, Texas is playing a not great Oklahoma state team that got drummed by UCF. And so, I think they're going to have to figure out moving forward kind of what to do for, with the conference championship games. Greg Sankey was pretty adamant that they're going to keep them. But as far as from an Alabama perspective, I think it just gives them even more leeway. I mean, look, Alabama's gotten into 80% of the playoffs when it's been a four-team format. They've gotten an eight mm-hmm. of the ten. So if it's 12 teams, as long as Nick Saban's the coach, Alabama's going to get in 100% of the time. Like, when have they finished outside the top 12 under Nick Saban? 
his first yep. year. Uh, maybe in uh, 2019, they technically, I think in the last CFP rankings, they may have been 13 um, before they beat Michigan in the Citrus Bowl. But uh, it, it's just, if it's a 12-team format, which it is going to be, I just, it's going to give Alabama, teams like Alabama, teams that have already been at the top, more leeway in the regular season to get in. But also, it will provide other teams that we haven't seen in there before an opportunity to get in, especially if they, mm-hmm. they stick with the um, highest-rated group of five. That that will obviously be some new faces in the mix. And then also kind of in that six to ten range, some teams that have always been on the outside looking in will now get a shot at the national title. Do I think it will change the results a lot? I mean, we, we look at the semifinal history in the playoff, and there have been very few good semifinal games. Um, mm-hmm. And so even then you think, you know, are there going to be 12 teams that are really even playoff worthy? But college football is great. It's a great sport. You know, adding more games, I'm, I'm sure there will be some good matchups. I think one of the best things about it that fans are excited about is the opportunity to have home playoff games. Um, that'll be really cool to get to see yeah. fan bases in different parts of the country in December when you, you know, you never play there normally at all, but especially at that time of year. So I think that'll be a cool aspect to it. But um I think it's only going to advantage teams like Alabama and um, the Ohio States right. and Georgia's of the world that already have gotten in multiple times. And you mentioned, you know, having to figure out what, what they do with championship games. I mean, you look at Washington and, Washington and Oregon right. in the Pac-12 this year. I mean, Washington had to beat Oregon twice virtually just to mm-hmm. make the playoffs, which you can look at as pretty unfair, all things considered. And then but that's kind of my point is, are the fans, though, thinking it's unfair given that it is just such a dominant team Alabama because now they're going to have all these other teams that might not be as dominant that might not be as deserving you know make these playoffs and and my last question for you as we lead off here do you think it might lead to some bad matchups though I mean you look at Liberty I think would play Missouri if it was a 12 team uh, playoff structure right now which I think Missouri would pretty much manhandle Liberty and have their way with them and are you kind of concerned with seeing some bad matchups when we go to the 12 team format yeah, I mean, I'm sure there will be some bad games because, like I said, in, in the college ball playoff in the current format, there's been some really bad uh, mm-hmm. semifinals. Alabama's um, really their first couple of years. Obviously, they the only time Alabama has lost in the semifinals was their first year against Ohio State, who went on to win the title. But in 2015, what was the final score against Michigan State? Like 38 to nothing or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what you picture for one of the four best teams is getting losing, getting shut out by 38 points in the playoff. Um, you know, a couple of years ago when it was Kyler Murray versus Tua, Alabama jumped out to a 28 to nothing lead in that game. It ended up the final score being a little bit closer, but we've already seen some bad um, semifinal matchups. And obviously last year's national championship between Georgia and TCU was not ideal <laughs> championship football mm-hmm. uh, matchup for the final 65 to seven or whatever it was. Um, and so, yeah, I think there'll be some not great games, but um, we also see upsets happen all the time in college football, and so um, it. I think it'll yeah. hopefully it'll produce enough good games um, and good matchups that it it balances out, right. and it, it'll maybe it'll leave it'll make more people across the country happier with the access they have uh, with twelve teams. Less room for complaining about this is why I got left out because you have even more opportunity to get in um, in this yeah. scenario. Yeah, and like you said, you might see some home games in, in the snow too yeah in these uh, in these playoff games would be which would be insane to see and I think uh just your last point too you mentioned <clears throat> TCU last year against Georgia 
that might actually be one of the reasons FSU was kept out because <clears throat> they wanted to kind of prevent that blowout matchup that, that we saw last year again. And they might've been afraid that FSU might've been one of those teams that would have struggled against the other three. So that would, that, that game, unfortunately last year, the national championship game might've really hurt FSU this year, but who knows? I'm not going to read the minds of the committee, <laughs> but Katie, thank you so much for your time. We'll definitely be in touch. Uh, yes. I really appreciate your time giving us the, you know, expertise, Alabama and then maybe, you know, if they, if they make it to the national championships, have me on again, give us a, you know, a rundown preview of what to expect and kind of just what, you know, touch base and what we can hope to see uh, on that game. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. All right, Katie, we'll be in touch. Thanks. Take care. Okay. Let's finish up the show with off the map and long haul. Zach, we'll start with you. What is your off the map of the week? Yeah. How about Rutgers basketball signing two of the top three prospects of the 2024 class, Dylan Harper, Ron Harper's kid, Ron Harper Jr.'s younger brother and Ace Bailey, both committing to Rutgers. And this is a program that, as we know, they're not necessarily a dominant program in any sport, but especially not in basketball. And now we're starting to see Steve Pickell, I think, has done a really good job there taking Rutgers to a couple of NCAA tournaments. Now he's getting the top talent that, you know, signing two of the top three players would be huge regardless of where you're at, whether it's Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, whatever the case may be. But to do it at Rutgers is an amazing accomplishment. Now it gives us reason to pay attention to the Scarlet Knights going forward because these guys are really good. Uh, Harper and, and Bailey could both be first-round picks, could both be lottery picks in 2025, and they're playing their college basketball at Rutgers. Kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I, I'll actually get that on my off-the-map or uh, long-haul a little bit. My off-the-map, though, Steelers making history for all the wrong reasons. We kind of already touched based on it earlier. Loss of the Cardinals and Patriots these in consecutive weeks. The Steelers have become the first team over 500 in the NFL uh, NFL history to lose consecutive games to teams at at least eight games under 500. Uh, Sunday's week 14 matchup in Pittsburgh saw the 2-10 and 10 Cardinals stroll in the AccuSure Stadium and leave with a 24-10 win. Of course, Thursday night, Steelers fell to the 2-10 and 10 Patriots. Uh, the Cardinals and Patriots put up a combined 45 points in six quarters against the Steelers defense, considered to be one of the top units in the league. Steelers uh, making history for the wrong reasons. Zach, what is your long haul of the week? Finish us off. Long haul of the week. I'm going with UConn women's basketball starting the year five and three, which is unheard of for UConn. They went years without losing games. Now they've lost three of their first eight games. This is not the same program that we're used to. and th They've gone... Five straight years, I believe, now without even winning a national championship, which at UConn is an eternity. And, you know, Paige yep. Becker's return has not been what what we anticipated. Like, she's been good, but it hasn't elevated the rest of the team just yet. And Gino Oriema, one of the best coaches, if not the best coach in the history of women's college basketball. Right now, this is not a program that's in the top 16 seeds projected in bracketology right now. And they just got dominated by Texas, 80-68 to 68 the other day. They're playing North Carolina on Sunday. Mm -hmm. it's not going to get any easier for the Huskies. And yeah. they're, they're not going to miss the NCAA tournament or anything like that. But I'm not sure that we can look at them as a national title contender anymore when we always used to count on UConn having either no losses or one loss, worst case, when the time they entered the NCAA tournament. So UConn women's surprisingly bad early in the season. Do you think men, the men team having success has anything to do with that? No, no. No? Yeah. You, you wonder, I mean, you know, money, mon monetary resources and all that. You always kind of wonder, but I agree. I don't, I don't think it does either. I'll keep it uh, basketball as well, but go but men's basketball. You already alluded to it, Zach. Uh, um, Dylan Harper joining the uh, Scarlet Knights. Uh, particularly my long haul is I don't, 
people, a lot of people are saying that Rutgers are national championship contenders now. Uh, I think that still might be a little bit too high fetched, a little bit too ambitious. Um, Harper is number two recruit in the class of 2027. Of course, uh, he will join the number three recruit as well as Ace Bailey, as you already kind of alluded to. You did allude to already, Zach. The, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Rutgers have definitely amassed one of the best recruiting classes in the nation, but I still think it's a little far off for them to be consider, uh, considered considered uh, national uh, title contenders. That's just not how really basketball works anymore. For a team to be successful, make a run, you need veteran play. And yeah, I just think two freshmen are not really going to get that done. Both likely to be. Um, one and done, considering how talented they are going to be. And yeah, I just think the veteran play is what Rutgers is ultimately going to be lacking on. And I just think it's going to be a little bit, it's a little bit too much talk for them to be considered national contenders next year. Good show. Zach will be back on Tuesday. Justin will be back with us. We'll get it. Guest still working out, but as always, uh, breakdown NFL and anything else that comes up since then, probably, well, Shohei most likely will be signed by somebody at that point. Maybe the maybe uh, Blue Jays, most likely the Blue Jays, but and uh, we'll hit, touch on all that then. But until then, keep on traveling, and we'll see you then.